It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. When your legs don't work like they used to before, and I can't sweep you off of your feet. Will your mouth still remember the taste of my love? Will your eyes still smile from your cheeks? Darling, I will be loving you till we're 70. And baby, my This is Ed Sheeran thinking out loud, and this song and this artist is actually in the middle of a very heated legal fight right now. Uh, There's some allegation that Ed Sheeran might have stolen this song, and it's going to court. We've seen this before with mixed results. We're going to play you the song a little bit later that it was purportedly stolen from, and let you be the judge. Just... Commit this one to memory. Well, I have been excited about this interview for a, a while. Uh, not only is our next guest somebody that has dedicated nearly her entire life to her country, uh, to the causes of science and space exploration, but she's really a model, uh, not just for women, uh, not just for New Yorkers, but for everybody, that you can achieve some extraordinary things if you uh, have a little bit of intellect and a lot of elbow grease, hard work, and determination. It's all chronicled in the book, Through the Glass Ceiling to the Stars, the story of the first American woman to command a space mission. That woman is Colonel Eileen M. Collins, retired colonel in the Air Force, and, as you might imagine, the first American woman to command a space mission. Colonel Collins, it's great to have you on the program. Thanks for staying up late for us. Yeah, well, thanks for having me. I'm happy to talk with you. Now, astronaut was one of those professions that it was probably, other than firefighter or Superman, the most requested aspiration of kindergartners for many, many years. When did you decide to become an astronaut? Is it something you aspired to do since you were five, or is it, was it a natural progression of the way things were going for you in the military? Well, actually, I specifically decided in fourth grade that I wanted to be an astronaut. I just happened to be reading an article in a junior scholastic magazine about the Gemini astronauts, and I decided I wanted to be just like them. They were the coolest guys I think I had ever heard about. I might have been nine years old, maybe 10, (laughs) but they, they were pilots. They were test pilots, military pilots, engineers, and I just wanted to do that. You know, there were no women uh, astronauts back then. I just thought I'd be a lady astronaut. And so I sort of set my goals in that direction. And honestly, I never thought it would really happen. But I got to admit, in this, this country, it's a pretty great country that we live in. You can set your dreams high and, you know, sometimes you can reach them. Uh, no doubt so, about it. Uh, did you have a favorite Gemini astronaut? Well, I like Jim McDivitt for whatever reason. I just, you know, maybe because he was uh, featured in the article, but I actually met him many years later. He's passed away now, but I met him at an, 
event in Tucson, oh, maybe 10 years ago, and he was just the nicest person. And I told him that he was one of my heroes. And, of course, we got to be friends. So, you know, things uh, things work out that way sometimes. Your experience in the uh, space program, which I think dates back to about 1989, how did you find that? You'd been in the Air Force for uh, about a decade before that. How did you find your experience with NASA and the space program generally uh, the same or different from the military? How did it compare to the Air Force? Yeah, well, you know, that's an interesting question because there was um, some differences so the Air Force, you know, is a little more regimented, and we're very uh, particular about using the chain of command. Uh, you follow the rules. Uh, if you don't follow the rules, then you better go report to your boss and tell him what you did and why you did it and, you know, confess. <laughs> and, you know, safety is always number one in the Air Force, you know, flying airplanes. And I was an instructor for many years, and I wanted to pass on that attitude of safety and you know, just, you know, the attitude of structure and uh, following the chain of command to my students. And going to NASA, I was about 13 years uh, in the Air Force, and then I got assigned to NASA as an astronaut. And I think it was, uh, you know, pretty much the attitude of safety uh, was there, but I think it was a little more open communication and cross-flow across uh, the organization at NASA. But also as a woman, I think that uh, the women were a little more widely accepted as peers at NASA, and that may be just because the organization was younger and uh, the Air Force had been around for a while and, you know, they had the old boys club, which, by the way, I really enjoyed working with the guys. I thought it was it was fun, and I uh, don't really recall having any major problems working with the guys, but I do think that there was a little bit of difference in the culture between the Air Force and NASA, you know, maybe, again, due to the fact that the uh, that NASA is just a little bit uh, younger organization. And that was uh, leads me to my next question. I think a lot of us have seen the film uh, Hidden Figures, where these women who worked at NASA as mathematicians, they experienced a, a significant amount of of sexism. Obviously, that was decades before you were uh, participating in the space program. What sort of uh, sexism, if any, did you find that you experienced in being a part of NASA in the in the eighties and the nineties? Well, I do want to say first of all about the hidden figures. You know, they are great role models, and the fact that they were there and they were doing the work that they were doing in the 1960s, really said a lot. And I'm sure they faced some barriers, but I'll tell you, the fact that they were there was huge, huge progress. And, you know, what they've shown, I mean, they're, they're just great role models uh, for young people today, showing that they were able to do the work they did. But to really answer your question, you know, I honestly did not really face that much uh, sexism or pushback at NASA. I really felt like I fit in. Um, the only thing really that was different about being the first woman pilot, and I was the first woman commander of a space shuttle, I really think the only difference came from the outside. I got a lot more uh, requests for interviews, a lot more, I want to say, media attention mm. than the guys did. But as far as working day to day, you know, it was really uh, just what's the mission? What do we got to do to make it successful? and working together as a team. And I talk about that 
uh, in my book. I, I talk about mistakes I made, uh, how to, you know, decisions I made, conflicts, setbacks, uh, you know, and I think what I wrote in the book really, I think, applies to guys, you know, uh, men in the Air Force and at NASA as well as women. And I think the the part about the glass ceiling, you know, I was the first woman, that's true. But I think that a lot of the issues I faced are the same ones that the men faced. Oh, no, that's clear. And I, I think going back uh, to you, you chronicle your time at the Air Force Academy all the way to, uh, you know, all the way to, uh, you know, the, your retirement through through NASA. By the way, if people are uh, just or pilot training, I should say. Um, uh, if people are just tuning in, we're talking with Colonel Eileen Collins, the author of the book Through the Glass Ceiling to the Stars. She also happens to have spent 872 hours in space. She is in the Astronaut Hall of Fame and uh, has done a great deal of other things, but uh, we only have a four-hour program, so I'm not going to mention all of them. <laughs> Did you always strive to command a space flight, or was that just a natural progression of the work that you were doing as a pilot? Well, actually, that, I think, was actually a dream of mine, going back to when I first learned about the astronauts back in, when I was a kid, back in the 1960s. I even remember watching TV shows like Buck Rogers. I don't know if you ever heard of Oh, yeah, who Buck, Buck Rogers, Rogers in the 25th is, century. I thought, you know, that's what I want to be. I want to go out and I want to have an adventure. I want to explore the Earth. I want to explore space. I want to go places no one else has been before. I want to go farther, faster, higher. And, you know, I want to be like Captain Kirk on the Starship Enterprise. And, you know, I always... Uh, for some reason, as a kid, just hanging around in the neighborhood, you know, being with my friends, uh, exploring, you know, the neighborhood. This is back in the days when your parents had no idea where you were, and I would just head out into the woods around my house, and we would explore. And we would have forts, and we would, you know, but you know, just, you know, play. And uh, I think my imagination was... Uh, really began in my childhood and the freedom that we had back in those days was was really great of course parents would never let their kids do that today because you know you just worry about their safety but back in the 1960s it was uh, I, I think we had a lot more freedom and I think because of that I I sort of have the explorer nature in me and even at my age now I read Books about explorers of of all kinds, you know, people that have explored all around the earth, uh, you know, back in the 1500s and, you know, the uh, right up until today. And the explorers that go out and I want to say the Apollo program, the astronauts that landed on the moon, uh, they took a lot of risks. Oh, yeah. And these, these men were just uh, incredibly brave and they were my role models. And again, I wanted to be just like them. And I think having role models is, is really important. Yeah, well, as, um, as the, the star-studded cast of characters that, uh, that are all commenting on your, on your book jacket all point out, you're a uh, role model for many. General Lester Lyles uh, said that um, you're not only an American hero, but uh, the, the memoir should be must-reading for all young girls and boys in school and for every aspiring student at all levels. And you have similar quotes from Buzz Aldrin, Tom Hanks, uh, a lot of other folks as well. But 
Um, you, it's interesting that you mentioned Captain Kirk because I got to interview William Shatner about his trip to space a couple of times. And he said, and this surprised me, that one of the things that he felt when he went and looked at the Earth from space, and he wasn't there for 800 hours, he was there for maybe 10, 12 minutes, was that he felt sadness. And apparently, this is a common thing uh, among people that travel to space. They call it the overview effect, where you get this strong emotional or mental reaction about the Earth and its place in the universe, and it shakes a lot of astronauts to the co- to the core. I'm curious, in your experiences going to space, did you ever experience anything like that? Well, you know, I... Uh, the times I was up, I flew four times on the space shuttle, and you're usually really busy for the first maybe 80% of the flight, and it's the last couple of days that you really have time to look out the window and reflect on the Earth, what you've done, and looking down on the Earth. It, it's a little bit scary when you see the Earth and how thin the atmosphere is. It's a tiny little layer of air. <clears throat> it's been called like an apple skin on an apple, using a metaphor there, that small layer of air is what's keeping us alive. And then you look out in the other direction and you just see the blackness of space and you realize we live on this planet. We're tiny little people and this planet is rotating and revolving around the sun. And it it really blows your mind. You you learn that in school, but then when you see it, it, it can be a little bit scary. You know, and I think that towards the end of a flight, there is a little bit of sadness about coming back because you, you know, I really enjoyed being in space, but I also missed my family. Sure. And I wanted to come home. <clears throat> and of course, I was, I wanted some lasagna and ice cream. So <laughs> there was a little bit of that too. But then, you know, returning from the flight, I, you can uh, look up uh, Buzz Aldrin wrote a book called Return to Earth, and he had some trouble adjusting when he came back, you know, having uh, been on the first mission to the to walk on the moon. But, you know, for me coming back, it was a little bit of a letdown after all those years of training. And now I, I did it. So what do I do next? Yeah. And so I decided to stay and fly another mission. And I think my second, third and fourth missions were a lot easier than my first one. One of the things that I remember vividly uh, 20 years ago, probably not as vividly as you remember it, but is the uh, Columbia Space Shuttle uh, tragedy. Now, you were following that very closely, and then about a year and a half after that uh, Columbia Space Shuttle blew up, you commanded NASA's return-to-flight mission after the Columbia disaster, to test some of the safety improvements and resupply the International Space Station. For people that aren't aware, what are some of the lessons that NASA and maybe even other space agencies that other countries run, that NASA learned as a result of that Columbia space shuttle tragedy? And is it safer for astronauts now than it was 20 years ago? Yeah, yeah. So you could write a book on the lessons learned. Uh, I'll answer the second part of your question first because it's it's quicker. Yes, NASA did learn a lot, and space travel today is much much safer safer than in the shuttle days. The shuttle did not have a crew escape system for for launch. For example, if uh, there was an explosion on launch, like during Challenger, 
they had no way to safely get out. Well, today's launch vehicles have a crew escape system, and that would be, uh, for example, the the uh, SpaceX uh, Dragon capsule has a crew escape system. Even the Russian Soyuz has crew escape. And the other thing that makes it safer is uh, the heat shield is protected on launch. And if you remember, the space shuttle was kind of hanging on the side of the tank there, and any debris could hit the tiles, which are our heat shield protection for when we return home. And that's what caused the Columbia accident. So today's launch vehicles are much safer. And, and what do we learn? I could go on and on, but let me just give you a maybe a top-level uh, quick answer. I think that we learned to have a better culture, to listen to each other, to have more of a humble attitude, and to be able to think more creatively. I think in the uh, maybe the 20 years plus years that we flew up to the uh, Columbia accident, we started thinking, oh, the shuttle's operational, we're going to do it this way, and we uh, didn't really open our mind to the fact that these strange things can actually cause an accident. You know, falling debris can actually break a heat shield, and people thought that wasn't possible. And some people thought it was possible, but, you know, maybe they weren't encouraged to Mm. speak up. So I think there's a lot of cultural lessons learned, and I actually have a whole speech on that uh, to you know, talk about what we learned from the Columbia accident that you can apply to your office, your life, your family, um, just being a better listener, uh, be humble, and uh, be, be a creative thinker. Yeah, I, I you know, that's so funny because I am always encouraging people to be better listeners, but I would have never thought that that was part of the problem with the culture in the space program was listening. But I guess in the context that you explain it, it uh, it makes perfect sense. Uh, You've spent some time at the International Space Station way back to the time that it was still referred to as the Russian Space Station Mir. We've seen up until recently a great deal of cooperation between American astronauts and Russian cosmonauts, not only at the International Space Station, but elsewhere as well. It's no secret there's a a lot of tension now between the United States and Russia. Are you concerned about the tensions not only between the U.S. and Russia, but the U.S. and China, and what that might portend for future collaborative international space ventures? Yes, I am very concerned about that. Um, I have friends in Russia. I've actually flown with Russians in space. Uh, They have very much, they're very much like us and love uh, space exploration. They love their jobs as cosmonauts. But ever since Russia invaded Ukraine, um, you know, we, we evaluated, should we continue working with the Russians? And it was just not feasible to, you can't break that space station apart into the Russian side and the American side. That really can't be done. So we're continuing to work with them. But as the years go by, we're, you know, Russia is saying once we uh, decommission our international space station, they're not going to continue to cooperate with us. They are uh, moving towards cooperating with China. And so so this is not a good thing for the United States. Um, I also know that uh, as, as a NASA astronaut, we were not allowed to cooperate with China. Um, although we did cooperate with Russia, you know, that was a national program. We were not allowed to uh, travel to China in a, a business 
uh, uh, I want to say, of business nature or uh, work with the Chinese in their space program at all. I mean, we're forbidden from doing that, and that goes back 20 years. So, uh, and, and that was really dictated to us by Congress. And it's still the same way today. And uh, Russia is moving to working with China. So this is going to cause a problem down the road. And I would like to see, I mean, ideally, have all of these countries cooperate. But much of this is out of our hands. As astronauts, you know, I think we're a little more idealistic. We uh, remember that when Neil Armstrong walked on the moon, he said, we come in peace for all mankind. That's our attitude towards space travel. I don't think China has the same attitude mm. towards space travel. I'm not sure that they would uh, put their flag on the moon and say, we come in peace for all mankind. You, they you, might put their flag on the moon and say, we own it. <laughs> yeah, well, that's what I was going to ask. Do, do you get the sense that the Chinese motivation in being a spacefaring country is more about uh, acquiring certain uh, rare earths or uh, you know the different things that would, would bring material wealth to China? Well, there are materials on the moon that I, I believe would be uh, worth it, worth the investment in mining on the moon. But we don't know right now exactly what's up there. I mean, we know there's helium-3. We know there's water. Um, you know, the water is, is kind of obvious. You can use that for many things. The helium-3 can possibly be used as a source of energy. And, you know, who knows what else is up there uh, that might be of value and China is working towards, in fact, they're doing almost the same thing we are. They've picked their landing sites on the South Pole of the Moon that are similar to our landing sites that we've selected. And we, we are saying we're going to land there in uh, late 2025, possibly uh, that might be delayed. Um, China's going to be a little bit behind us is what it looks like right now. But if we don't have the funding or if we have problems with our development, China could get get to the moon before we get back there. Talking with Eileen Collins, her new book is Through the Glass Ceiling to the Stars. It's available on Amazon or wherever books are are sold. One of the, uh, I find exciting, aspects about the future of the space program is that you see a lot of nations continuing with their space program, but you're also seeing a great deal of private sector investment. This got a lot of attention last week with the SpaceX Starship from Elon Musk, that rocket, they say the most powerful rocket ever built, blowing up after a couple of minutes after it was launched. Are you optimistic about the future of private sector space travel? Are you concerned about it? Where do you see private sector space travel going? Yeah, I am very optimistic and I am very supportive of private, whether you call it private or commercial. The These companies like SpaceX are working with NASA. It's a partnership and we're going to be able to go a lot faster with them. And one of the big differences the private companies can raise capital. They can go out and get, uh, you know, private money to help them go faster. NASA can't do that. And one of the problems we had in the space shuttle program, it was the space shuttle was great, by the way. It, it was, uh, I, I would say, despite the fact that we had the accidents, it was a very, very successful program. But all of our money came from Congress. And if you had a setback, uh, maybe Congress could hold your money back. And, you know, that it worked okay for a while, but if you want to go faster, you must have private industry. So the difference today is these rockets are owned and operated by the private company. 
They're not owned and operated by NASA. Instead, NASA is a customer. You know, we'll pay for a launch or we'll pay for a particular astronaut to uh, go up to the space station on these rockets. Um, by the way, SpaceX is also building the lander for uh, the next moon landing. They will own that and operate it, and we will pay them by each mission. And the other thing that's interesting is uh, private uh, individuals can pay SpaceX if they have enough money. Uh, in fact, there's already a crew that has paid for a flight to circle the moon in in one of uh, SpaceX's rockets. Mm. And that'll be a couple of years down the line. You know, very these are people with a lot of money, but, you know, that's they will be the first people to fly in space. The more we fly, the cheaper it will get and the safer it will get. And more and more people like you and me can, uh, you know, afford a flight, maybe not in my lifetime, but I think that eventually uh, people with, in lower income brackets will be able to pay for a flight into space. And, and I think all of this is good. This this can this can as long as we do it safely, and we don't you know take I want to say unusual or unnecessary risks. It's going to be it's going to be good, and it will help our country overall. Uh, I appreciate you being so generous with your time. I know it's late at night, but a couple other quick questions that I just want to ask you. Yesterday, the Director General of the European Space Agency told Axios that he wants to see other space agencies consider accepting people with disabilities into their astronaut corps, and uh, they're going to have someone who was a Paralympian whose right leg was amputated become what they're calling the first para-astronaut. John McFall is his name. And essentially he's saying that a physical handicap should not stop you from becoming an astronaut. Do you agree with that? Do you think people that have some sort of physical disability, maybe a lost leg or another lost limb, should be included for consideration for future space flights? Well, you are taking more risk when you send a person into space with a disability. So that is a risk. They need to they need to understand that before they – I mean, this is the private company as well as the individual that wants to go. Before they sign up to go, they need to fully understand what the risk is. And, you know, that's what I did on my flights as an astronaut. And, by the way, people with disabilities, I think that they should certainly have the right to go up and, you know, fly one flight or uh, – you know, maybe a couple of flights, but there's a difference between someone flying once or twice and a professional astronaut. So a professional astronaut, you know, maybe can be compared a little bit to an airline pilot or a military pilot. You do it as your job, and you have got to be able uh, to safely operate and, and help people that may be having trouble. So, as you know, someone with a disability would not sit in the exit row on an airplane. So you just if you keep it in that perspective, yes, these people should be able to fly, but they have to understand the risk and they have to be able to do it safely. I, I know this may seem like a silly question, but I, th- I, don't, I, think, I don't think the audience would forgive me if I didn't ask you uh, about it because last week or the previous week, we spent a fair amount of time looking at a new documentary that explores the things that Edgar Mitchell has said. Uh, Edgar Mitchell, of course, the uh, sixth man to walk on the moon, a very de- uh, decorated naval officer and one of the real pioneers of the Apollo project. And he basically was very adamant about his views on UFOs, and he stated publicly that he was 90% sure that many of the thousands of UFOs recorded since the 40s belonged to visitors from other planets. Do you have any take on these UFO sightings and the UFO phenomenon in general? 
Yeah, you know, there's been a lot of this in the news lately, so I've been thinking about it a lot. I have not actually seen anything myself that I couldn't explain, but clearly some of these videos, they're showing some type of energy that cannot be explained. So I believe that there are things going on in the world, uh, in, in the atmosphere and in space, that we have not yet been able to uh, identify what they are. You know, maybe we don't have the sensors. Maybe it's in, you know, some energy spectrum that we haven't been able to detect yet. So certainly there are things going on. I honestly don't think it's little green men, like watching us from a distance. But you know, I I want to keep an open mind. <laughs> I'm asked this question a lot. So I think it's important that the government does not cover mm. things up. I think that People are mature enough to uh, handle whatever maybe the U.S. government finds that something strange is going on. Let people know about it because it's amazing what you can learn from just people that observe in their backyard and maybe pay attention to this stuff. We need to get it out there and Uh, talk about it. Colonel Eileen Collins, author of the book, Through the Glass Ceiling to the Stars. Thank you so much. I would love to talk again soon. I have a lot of other questions for you, not only based on the book, but what's happening in the space program more generally. Yeah, I enjoyed our conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Eileen Collins, check out the book. Uh, if you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you can, 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. We'll try and take your call straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Midnight.